0: In this episode of Gridlock Break, we hear from Glenn Hubbard, the former dean of Columbia Business School and chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. He explains why the current Federal Reserve lending program for businesses hurt by coronavirus may be doomed to fail and makes the case for a massive new infrastructure program to help restore demand across our economy. Let's listen in.
1: I'd like to begin, actually, by thanking you, Nancy, and and No Labels. This organization has been doing the Lord's work for some time. And at a time like this, where the country has to come together to solve both a pressing near-term problem and a longer-term recovery problem, this work is needed more than ever. I've been working the past several weeks very closely with members of Congress. Uh, both Republican and Democratic members of Congress on uh, COVID-19 economic issues and I must say while obviously people are political on both sides of the aisle I won't deny that there's been more of a spirit of let's solve a problem than I'm used to seeing in Washington So if ever there's a moment, it's it's this So I obviously have not being a health specialist. I can't add much for you in terms of health policy Uh, In the economy and that's a little bit unfortunate because almost everything that one can say about Both the downturn and the shape of the recovery are derivative of health policy issues So we're in a period where we have what you can think of as an extreme supply shock. We shut down large sectors of the economy. So this is not a typical Recession this isn't a typical financial crisis. This is something where for health policy reasons We have uh, engineered a shutdown. Uh, That's important because when you think about the shape of the downturn and the upturn, you have to remember that very unusual feature. So I know people like to speak in business cycle letters of the alphabet like V's and U's and W's and L's. Uh, The the metaphor that I've tried to use with people is more like a Nike swoosh. So the part that I know is we're going to go straight down for a while. And it's going to be very ugly, and you shouldn't really worry exactly how bad the GDP drop or the unemployment drop is. It's just going to be very, very bad. Then the question is, when does the turning point begin, and what's the slope? Is it a relatively uh, steep swoosh, or is it a very, uh, a very uh, long swoosh? Just to anticipate what I'm going to say to you, I, I think it's going to take a while. You should not think of this as The moment that we restart the economy, um, everything goes back to normal. So a little bit about policy in an environment like this, what would you do? In the downturn, uh, Congress focused in the CARES Act on what I would call stabilization policy. I know sometimes people call these things stimulus bills. It's not a stimulus bill. We're telling all of us to sit home. There's nothing really to stimulate. It's trying to assimilate, if you will, a normally functioning economy. So you would like to see businesses continue. You would like to see employees stay in their employment matches. Uh, I had surfaced the plan, uh, actually, while I was in India in mid-March, that I worked with Republican leaders on. It became the backbone of what's called the Paycheck Protection Program. I, I thought that small businesses needed to have their revenue covered for a period of time. Congress didn't exactly do that, but it it went down that road. Conditional on keeping um, uh, employees on payroll, I thought the advantage there was over unemployment insurance where you're also going to spend public money, but you'll break the labor relationship. If this is going to last, say, two to three months, I felt this was better. It would keep businesses uh, operating. Uh, Congress worked very hard on that. Uh, I think the implementation uh, has been tough because you you can't really stand up a government agency in real time. So my idea was to use banks because banks deal with small businesses and they have the loans guaranteed. Uh, and then um, banks would be willing to make the loans, the loans would be forgiven, and we're off to the races. Now, part of the implementation problem has been both the Treasury and the Small business Administration, I won't say have done everything possible to frustrate the success of the program, but they've done a lot. Uh, neither is very good at this, and it shows. Uh, we're slowly getting there, as many of us on the outside have tried to help with both bank issues and borrower issues, but we're there. The other end of this, um, still in the downturn phase, is thinking about very big businesses. And there, you know, the uh, legislation gave the treasury a fund. Uh, I don't know exactly what the treasury will do, but I I think one way to think about it is these businesses are different than small businesses. And what we want to do is make sure that we don't get them into financial distress. We want to make sure that the government doesn't take corporate control into its own hands. But we also want to make sure taxpayers Are paid for taking tail risk. And the argument that I've made to the secretary is the security that meets all those conditions would be preferred stock with warrants attached. So that would give the Treasury a senior claim uh, over the common, but wouldn't increase the likelihood of financial distress, would not give corporate control, but would give taxpayers uh, an upside uh, in good states. This, of course, was the kind of security. Uh, that was used in the TARP uh, program in 2008. In the middle, so CARES had, CARES defined, the CARES Act defined small businesses 500 or fewer. And then the big businesses I just talked about were 10,000 or more employees. In the middle, those 500 to 10,000, the law was a little vague. It just said, we're going to let the Fed worry about it. Now the Fed is standing up something they call a Main Street Lending Facility. And we can come to this in Q&A if you like but I think they're designing it in a way that it just isn't going to work at all. And I'm trying to figure out why. Um, They call it Main Street, and the term sheet says it goes to borrowers from zero to 10,000 workers. But if you read the term sheet, the minimum loan is a million dollars. So we know we're not talking about what I would call a small business. And uh, the capital they've stood up against it is $75 billion to back $600 billion, uh, in a crisis. So they can't possibly be lending to small businesses. There's no way that loss profile works. And when I've talked to Fed officials, they, they admit as much, uh, at least in, in private. So that's going to be a big issue. I mean, I think the administration and the Fed really have to figure out how to get this Main Street lending facility, A, to be Main Street, and B, to be lending. I mean, actually making it work. Not to get too much into the weeds, but many bankers feel during the financial crisis that they were retraded by the government. The FHA and other governmental agencies brought lawsuits against the banks for reps and warranties, and I think many of the banks today are worried about that again. So maybe in the weeds, but I think uh, super important. What happens as you go into the recovery, the so-called reopening phase? Uh, There, too, I don't think of that as an opportunity as much for stimulus as it is for going back to basics. So what I would have in mind is um, making sure that we have given sufficient funds to states uh, to do their job, both in public health infrastructure and Medicaid spending, which is going to be elevated uh, for an extended period of time. Trying to make sure we have policy uncertainty um, at a minimum. So I think it's not a good time to talk about raising taxes on business, which is definitely going to come up in the campaign this fall. It's going to be a huge theme uh, on one side side of the aisle. And I think it's a good time to talk about regulation. Um, You know, Philip Howard, in the work that he's done now for some time, has uh, quite a laundry list, but I would think there are many regulations that could be cleaned up at this time to provide smoother sailing for business. The one piece that I would suggest that does involve money is infrastructure. And I say this for a very different reason than politicians usually raise it. They usually raise it in the context of stimulus. That's not how I think about it. Indeed when President Obama suggested it uh, my remarks to Rahm Emanuel and Austin Goolsby was it struck me as silly I don't think of most infrastructure as shovel-ready projects But what I do think of it is if you make a commitment for a long period of time to an infrastructure program You have told business people that there's a floor on aggregate demand get your confidence back And one of the things we have to worry about in this recovery is business people being shaken uh, in their confidence. And some things we can do for free if we're willing to, like not starting other trade wars, cleaning up regulations. But I think the infrastructure spending um, will be uh, will be important. In terms of um, cooperation issues, just again where I, I began, this is one where both parties do need to come together. And I think there are ample opportunities to do so. So when you think about small and mid-sized firms, Normally both parties have enormous concerns for those Businesses and their employees there should be a chance to get that right if there are regulations that are standing in the way of recovery I don't see that as a conservative topic or a liberal topic. but just a common sense topic and then likewise with infrastructure I've heard leading Democratic politicians and Republican politicians at various points in time Supporting it, this would seem like the time to underscore business confidence. So let me let me stop there. This is going to be a difficult period. It's going to uh, last quite a while. If I can make one um, uh, political season observation, what I don't know, being just an economist, is whether people look at levels or derivatives. But I can give you a forecast of those, even though I can't of politics. While levels won't be good in the fall, derivatives likely will. So. By the third quarter, you are likely to see unemployment coming down a lot, GDP growth up a lot, although the level's still down from the pre-crisis period. So depending on whether you think people look at levels or derivatives, that's either good or bad news uh, for President Trump. But I'll stop there. Happy to talk to you about uh, any of that or anything else on your mind.
2: And let me ask you a question just to get it started, and then we'll open it to the floor. Uh, and you mentioned this in the editorial that we passed around, but the role of the Fed, I think everybody feels yeah. really good about the aggressive stance they've taken. Yep. Yeah. But also there is apprehension about their they're getting into legislative kind of initiatives um, in a remarkable way that they've never yeah. done before. What are your thinking about sort of the, the the precedent that's been set for the future and, and the activity of the Fed and
1: and Great question. And I go back and forth in my own mind between I'm worried and then relative to what? So to explain both of those, if you if you put the Fed's actions into three buckets, I think you can see it. So one bucket that's surely non-controversial is correcting market microstructure problems in the Treasury markets, agency markets, and other HQLA, high quality liquid asset markets, we would had some dislocations there. The Fed has smoothed those out entirely within the wheelhouse of the Fed, and I don't think anyone cares. Middle bucket, uh, investment-grade corporate debt, some high-yield corporate debt, and municipal bonds. Now, there, again, lender of last resort, function of the Fed, strikes me as legitimate. But once you get past the uh, high-quality investment-grade corporate debt, uh, there are credit risk issues. And so the question is, is that fiscal policy or is that monetary policy? Now, the Fed has been given capital by the Treasury, but I would say that um, that's a questionable area. I support what the Fed is doing largely because we've got to have it. That's why I said my second question after worrying was relative to what? Mm -hmm. The third that I worry the most about is the Main Street lending facility, because there that's brand new territory for the Fed. They are going to take big losses. They have not put up enough capital to do that. And if they lose more money in expected value than what the Treasury gave them, that's a problem. Now, it's not an accounting problem, because we all know there's only one balance sheet. It's the Treasuries. The Fed's just fiction that Congress created. It's all the taxpayers' money. Having said that, if the, tre- if the Fed did lose money relative to a Treasury allocation, That could call into question the Fed's independence. It could lead the president to go into another round of criticizing the Federal Reserve. So I would think they need to worry about that. The other worry the Fed has, of course, is if they do nothing on the Main Street Lending Facility. As I said in my remarks, the facility they're standing up isn't going to work. That's their goal. They're on the right path. The problem with that strategy is uh, they're going to get beaten up for letting small businesses fail. I could easily see the president saying it wasn't my fault. It's your fault, Jay Powell, uh, and, and there you have it. So I'm worried, but I have to ask myself relative to what? The Fed is a smart, technocratic, able institution,
3: and in some cases, is the only game in town. So Glenn, I'm going to stay on this same topic of the Federal Reserve. On March 9th of this year, um, which seems like an eternity ago, um, I had Esther George at my home for dinner, Um And we had an interesting conversation about this coming issue that no one could have imagined at that. I mean, think about it, March 9th, it doesn't feel like that long ago. It's an eternity ago. Um, What happens after this crisis has passed? You know, how do we, as a country, financially recover not in terms of our businesses because I think our businesses will recover. This was a very uh, crazy moment in time, and I think we will lose some, but I think we will recover. Um, but what happens to the Feds, fed the Federal Reserve? What what happens to our debt tr- structure? When I when I joined the board of the Federal Reserve, um, out here. Paul Volcker had just retired and Alan Greenspan had just come on. So I was raised sort of in the Alan Greenspan spirit of low deficits. And here we are. So I'd like you to discuss what comes sort of after the recovery.
1: That's a great question. How do
3: we recover from the
1: recovery? recovery. (laughs) And since you raised deficits too, let me, let me tackle them both. So. Right now, I don't have a problem with the Fed's balance sheet blowing up and acquiring a lot of debt. Uh, I think of this as being like a war. and In a war, government spending goes up a lot. Uh, After the war, government spending doesn't keep that high level, and GDP grows, and you typically have financial repression and low interest rates, and the government budget comes back into whack. That's what I think a war is. That's what I think should happen here. As to the Fed's other interventions, that's a big question. The Fed's job ought to be to make sure markets are functioning well. In normal times, I don't see a Fed role in small business lending or junk bonds or any of that. Frankly, I'm not sure I see a Fed role for junk bonds right now, but that may just be one person's view. I view many of those companies as having gotten themselves into trouble. and I'm not that sympathetic. But I think the Fed will have to unwind uh, some of this. And that's the political difficulty. because Congress may say, gee, we actually kind of like this stuff. So I think just as the, the war ended in 1945, the Fed Treasury Accord was not until 1951. And I think we're going to have a period where the Fed and the Treasury continue to talk cooperate. I don't think it's reasonable to think all this unwinds overnight as much as we might want. Esther George is a lovely lady. she's not a random draw from the Fed. She's more like me, a quite conservative uh, Fed official. Um, but hopefully her instincts and the instincts of some other regional bank presidents will shape uh, some of the path out. Sure, John Muse.
2: John Muse raised his hand, John.
4: Most of us on the phone, business leaders, would agree with you on this uh, swoosh-like recovery. <clears throat> None of us have any idea what uh, phase two looks like, and we're a long way from a vaccine, which is ollie ollie income free and everything's back to normal. So, as an economist, you know we're struggling with how to model the demand curve for the third quarter for the fourth, we know the second quarter is going to be a complete disaster. As an economist, what would you, because you're still going to have huge sectors, the economy shut down, Um, leisure, hotels, restaurants, bars, entertainment venues, concerts, sporting events. So how is an economist, how do you, look at the shape of that curve and obviously if we can get some treatments and we can get the rate of death, I think if you could tackle the death rate in the near term, it it might bend that curve some, but it's hard to, it's hard to understand where we get to from, let's say this summer to a vaccine, you know, in terms of being an economist and a forecaster.
1: How do you look at that? Well, it's a a great question. I I think that um, the reopening is not a zero one, it is a gradual process. So uh, I talk usually every other day or so uh, with people like Scott Gottlieb and others who I trust since I'm not a um, a medical or health expert. I think it's reasonable to assume that younger people, uh, people who've developed immunity, some others will go back to work first. I think of reopening is probably in two phases, a less vulnerable population first, and then a more vulnerable population. So I, I, I still stand by what I said earlier, that the derivative in the third quarter is sharply positive, even if everything is not reopened. I do have worries about business models. Uh, in some of these sectors because sometimes when I talk with public health people and I hear them say things like, well we'll just have restaurants operate at 50% capacity or hotels and I go you can't make any money there. It. it's not a business. So maybe right. a doctor you can say that but the operating leverage in these businesses doesn't support that. Even closer to home, you know Jim and I were talking about universities before everybody got on, I'm worried about the university you know when I teach private equity, it's a big lecture hall of 106 kids crammed into a room sitting next to each other. If it suddenly had to be every fourth seat, I don't see how the operating model works. And so I think we are going to have to think about these things. So that's why I think it's not just a, a zero one. Everything I hear is vaccine a year away. If that's true and we manage to muddle through this year, we'll probably be fine. But if that isn't true, that's a different ballgame, But I think some of these businesses are going to have to think much more about what the business model is, because even if you take away supply restrictions and just go to demand, how eager are you to get on a crowded airplane? How eager am I to ride the crowded subway that's right out front of my apartment? I'm not sure. Without debating what should be done, uh, whether it's right, the facts are that by 2022, the uh, federal debt probably be 30 trillion. Probably by 2025, 35 trillion. By the end of the uh, decade, 40 trillion. Um, at some point,
2: there's not going to be any way to uh, pay even the interest. Interest rates will probably
1: go up, and the dollar may unwind. A lot of paper currencies may unwind. Nobody's giving any thought to the ultimate cost, which may be tremendous What do you make of that? What's your what's your how do you view that? Well, I I would take it in um, a couple parts So one I'm not as worried about the two trillion dollars that we just borrowed Uh, Even if not all of it would be exactly what I would have done if I were king. I, I think that's a reasonable Set of things to do as I say in a war you fight a war and then you figure it out What I would be worried about are two things one we already had, and the others knew. The one we already had is an unsustainable fiscal path. We were on that in February. Didn't take COVID 19. We all know where it comes from. And the only way to unwind that fiscal path is some combination of reform of entitlement programs and raising taxes. There is no, you know, I don't have magic bullets. The other that worries me is taking this as an occasion to say, why don't we just borrow money to start whole new programs? If we can borrow $2 trillion to fix COVID, why can't we uh, take the Medicare age down to 50 or something like that? Well, that's crazy. There's a big difference between a one-time borrowing that you would do in a war and a whole new entitlement. So I, I'm worried both about the existing entitlements, but also an attitude of, well, if the market didn't blow up when we did $2 trillion, why don't we just do more? I, I think that's a mistake. But I see no appetite, to be fair, on either side of the aisle to do anything about it. I don't hear it from the president. I don't hear it from Mr. Biden. I don't hear it from Democrats or Republicans in Congress.
2: What's it going to look like in uh, in five, six, seven years, given that's the case?
1: Well, we don't know in the sense of, gosh, I would have thought current debt levels would have caused more of a problem than they had. What we do know is that the longer we wait, the harder it is, and we do know that we're going to hit some cash flow crises. I'm going from memory, but I think we hit one in the Medicare trust funds in just a very few years, and while economists will say it doesn't matter, I mean, it's only present value that matters, in Washington, cash flow crises matter. Remember, the Greenspan Commission was set up because of a cash flow crisis in Social Security. Social Security had always been deeply troubled. It was the cash flow part that, that changed it. So we may have an opportunity for the next president or the current president if he's reelected uh, in a very few years. Well,
4: I, I was just going to add on to what, what Glenn just said and what the question was. In terms, one of our central pillars and no labels problem solvers has been this fiscal responsibility that we have to our grandkids, our kids and our grandkids. Unfortunately, and to balance the budget over the next 25 years, unfortunately we found through our polling that the electorate, this is not a winner. And therefore not that much of a winner with politicians. So I hate to be a downer here, but I would love for someone to take that on, but I, I'm not that hopeful. Well,
1: it's a great question. I I think that the only way to get reform in the polling environment that you correctly note is to reform programs, but without the budget in mind. So if you asked me to talk about Social Security and Medicare reform, I don't think I would begin with how much they cost. I would begin with how they don't relate to the world we live in. One was designed in the 1930s, the other in the 1960s. We're different worlds. We need a more modern version of those programs. In so doing, some people yeah. will be made better off, others perhaps worse off, but it would be much more modern. And I think particularly if you're thinking about younger voters, the idea of making these programs relevant to the lives that they actually live may be more of a winner than saying, gee, how would you like me to cut your benefits? Would you raise taxes or cut the benefit part? You can see why politicians don't find that that appeal. Yeah. I'm not a politician, so that may not work.
4: Change the narrative. Yeah, yeah, I
1: exactly.
4: Like I like it.
5: I look at a lot of. I, I, I'm from Illinois, and Illinois is is for all intents and purposes a bankrupt state, um, given the uh, the um, unfunded uh, pension and healthcare promises. And during this crisis, I would expect because revenues are going to drop substant substantially, you know, from sales taxes and whatnot, that at some point a state like Illinois is going to go to Washington and look for a bailout. And I see a real moral hazard with that. And I, I would just like your your thoughts on that, please. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Illinois was in trouble on a clear day. It didn't take <laughs> COVID-19. And so I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't propose using federal taxpayer money. In fact, I've always felt the federal government Could have more of a role on state and local finance than it thinks. The um, tax exemption for municipal debt is not in the Constitution, it's a creation of Congress. And Congress could easily say that to get access to favorable treatment, you have to have particular kinds of accounting standards and so on. I think the federal government has more of a lever for bad states that it uses, but I don't think this is a good opportunity for taxpayer money. Having said that, somebody's going to have to think of a system. I, You all know Illinois far better than I, but I recall that there was a battle in court. If we have a negative sum game, as, which we do in Illinois, is that who's going to take the losses? Constitutionally, can it be pensioners? Must it be taxpayers? You know, these are, these are things courts and the public will have to work out because in some of these states,
6: don't think they're going to be able to manage their way out of it. My guess is most of the people on this call, me included, thought there would be inflation after the stimulus of 2008, which is looking like amateur hour compared to what's going on now. Is there any reason to believe that you know this time will be different, or you know, in effect, I hate to even put it this way, but is, is modern monetary theory right?
1: I don't. Well, those are two different questions. I don't see a lot of inflation at the present, simply because we're not going to see the velocity of money. Uh, Be high enough to pull that off. At some point, massive amounts of liquidity without a supply response will generate inflation. I don't see that in the foreseeable future. I think modern monetary theory is right only in the trivial sense, which is the point I made earlier that there is only one balance sheet, it's the Treasury. And you can call something the Fed, you can call something the Treasury. That's kind of irrelevant. But what I am troubled by with modern monetary theory is the notion that you could just borrow without limit, and then Congress will decide uh, when to rein it in when inflation happens. Gee, that's not a bet I'd want to run. Members of Congress in their infinite wisdom would do that. So I, I'd put MMT aside, but I'm not that worried about inflation uh, right now, and I wasn't particularly in, in a way either. So this is Glenn Lowenstein. It, so you're not worried
2: about a stagflation, a in the economy?
1: Well, I'm not worried about the inflation part of that at the moment. I don't see uh, the pressures there. Even before COVID-19, inflation pressures were building only gradually. I I sit on the board of ADP, so I, I see a lot of payroll data every week from our business. We pay a bunch of the private sector in America. and You were seeing wage rates rising but not a range that would have taken the Fed way beyond its comfort zone. So I had felt before COVID-19, the Fed would probably cross its 2% inflation target this year, but not accelerate too much beyond that. So I'm not worried with, with COVID-19. I got a lot of worries about it, but not, not inflation.
6: Doug Scribner. Uh, Glenn, uh, in thinking about the shape of the recovery, whether it's V or, or Swoop or whatever, what's the impact, what's the role of the gig economy uh, in terms of the the, the downward slope and and the upward slope? Does it help, hurt, what's the implications of the gig economy?
1: Well, I think a couple of things, a near-term and a longer-term answer. The near-term answer is it's clearly been a buffer. You know, a lot of those folks have been in the, the backbone parts of the economy. Not all of what I would call logistics are done in the formal sector. A lot of them in the gig economy, but I think going forward, there may be a realization that many workers didn't have the employment protections they needed, the wages they needed, the benefits they needed. I'd be stunned if this is not a big element in the campaign this fall and legislation that's presented to a new president, whether it's Mr. Biden or, or Mr. Trump. Um, hey, Glenn, how are you? Uh, Hi. I, I, uh, I guess the biggest concern I have still is
5: what you're talking about in both the Main Street facility and the exchange rated facility. And I think people have um, lost lost track of the fact that the TARP was paid back. Um, people are just yeah. are equating that with uh, expenses and grants, as opposed to
1: loans that, when you look at their yeah. terms, are actually quite stringent and need to be paid yeah. back. And I think getting that money out is the most important thing. And when I read the, uh, and I started as a banker, when I read the provisions of
5: that, it, it, it strikes me as um, one-on-one in banking, which is only lend money um, to people who don't need it, because um, then yep. you're sure to get it back.
1: Well, and that's what they're planning to do. I mean, you may have started as a banker, but you look like you're a professor, given your background. Your, your <laughs> so uh, basically, the way I think about it, um, the Fed should not be thinking about TARP. TARP was an action that was basically some banks got into a liquidity problem and a crisis. The Fed has a good role there and the Treasury has a good role there. The Treasury was never going to lose money on banks and it did not It did lose money lending to auto companies, which I wouldn't have done, but they, they did. Uh, here is very different. The Fed ought to be worried, if you think about small and mid-sized firms for this argument, about liquidity uh, almost quickly going to a solvency issue, you are going to lose money in these programs. And that is why the Treasury gave the Fed capital. So if the Fed stands up a goal of not losing money, they are not going to make loans. And if they tell banks, you have to do real underwriting and we are going to come after you if you do not, the banks are not going to originate any loans. And for the very high-quality borrowers who could get the loans, given the low-demand environment right now, why would they want to borrow? Exactly. So as I look at all the elements of this, I just don't see this working. And I have screamed this as loud as I can at the Fed and just been told, well, you know, we just don't want to lose money. And I, I think they're going to have the political mistake of a lifetime uh, if they don't do this right, because they will be accused of bailing out big business, but letting small business fail. Whether that's fair or not, I'm not saying, but that, that will be the political attack.
2: Great insight. Uh, Glenn Lowenstein, do you have a question? No, he, uh, thank you, um, Glenn Hubbard, for being on. And I and I asked it earlier. Really, the um, I guess my worry is that in a political environment, and it was related to the forty trillion dollar of debt question. Yeah. There's only two ways out: one is pay it back, and the other is inflate. Thing, and so we're in a weaker economy. The economy is kind of. Plateauing anyway, this thing hits four years of coming back. And well, there's I'm subtle, there's, there's, there's
1: subtle ways of doing. I mean, <clears throat> traditionally, there's three ways out: raise taxes, cut spending, or inflation. There's subtle permutations, though. <clears throat> For example, after the Second World War, there was a long period of financial repression. We did that again after 08. We're about to do it now. So that is a way of getting, you know, it's basically debt service burdens down. So I I think that we could manage through this temporary increase in debt, but we had a debt problem going into this. So it's sort of like saying, suppose I were 70 pounds overweight and I gained an extra five and took five off Well, I've still got the other stuff. And that's what we're forgetting, that even if we can manage this extra five pounds of weight, we were pretty overweight going into it. And we need to fix it. But as we all said before, there's zero appetite for that. Pitched as a fiscal question. I think the idea of a Simpson-Bowles commission, it's just not going to work. It would have to be some kind of general reform. Let's fix these programs. Let's make them better for the American people. But I'm not hearing that either.
2: But one last question. Isn't there some sort of rule we learned about 150% of
1: your GDP, if, if debt goes to that level, or 200%, you have a problem? Or is that- We all- don't know. Is the honest answer, <coughs> you may remember that Reinhard and Rogoff got into a little right. bit of trouble by suggesting a fixed line in the sand. And the truth is, we never know for the reserve currency country. It's sort of like um, Potter Stewart's line about pornography, that you know it when you see it, uh, as opposed to having some- uh, codified rule. Japan, for example, has extremely elevated debt to GDP ratios, even by the high standards we are now. So I don't think we know, but we do know this, that the longer we do this, the consequences of lower spending, higher taxes, or inflation down the road are, are there. I've always felt, putting aside being an economist, this is a moral argument that we need a what I would call we the people budget. So anything that's consumption in the here and now, for me, and my peers, we should pay for. The things that we should be borrowing for are things that affect future generations. I would view fighting COVID-19 in that bucket. I would view a war in that bucket or infrastructure in that bucket. I wouldn't view borrowing money for my children to pay for my own health care in that bucket. So that's a moral argument, but
6: that doesn't seem to have
0: much resonance with the public either. Thank this you. is Rob Corn in Denver. Can I ask a question?
6: Sure. Um, Glenn, if you had your ability to put um, parameters on this $500 billion of money that's going to big business, um, what would those parameters look like? I mean, it seems like we've got no criteria on which this money is going to be doled out.
1: I'm super worried about it. I, uh, I'm worried about cronyism. If I can just cut cut to the chase, I think you want to have rules and a security design. So you want to have rules so that the design looks similar rather than customized packages borrower by borrower where possible. And as I said earlier, the way I would think of it is, you probably want a preferred stock whose structure gives the issuer a reason to get the Treasury out. So if you remember in TARP, the way that was done was to have a modest dividend up front, a high dividend after a few years, which gave an incentive. Uh, Another way to do that here, if liquidity is an issue, is to think about a a paid in kind dividend where it could be warrants for future good states of the world. Uh, I think you need something like that so that the Treasury wins. I get very worried if each firm can simply go in and lobby for assistance from the Treasury, not because I think ill of people at the Treasury, but just that process is not going to lead to fair outcomes.
2: You. What, you, what you might do is what they did with uh, General Motors; they told them they couldn't use their private planes until they paid off the government, and that worked pretty effectively. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, you just want some mechanism that says to business people, get the taxpayer out. And if it's private planes or if it's dividend structures, right. whatever works, because to me, it's not effective to have government uh, in corporate boardrooms, which is one reason that I suggested a preferred structure.
5: Okay, Jim, this is Bill Kunkler. Can I go with one more? Sure. Um, uh, Glenn, this is um, on reserve currency status. Yeah. Have you given it much thought um, uh, about... First of all, what the value is to the United States to have to enjoy world currency status and how we might lose it? Because it seems like we are we're we're starting to get into that territory now.
1: Well, we're living through the value uh, in the sense that, first of all, it's enormous seniorage possibilities to be the world currency. And the fact that we're able to borrow so much money, much of which will have to come from foreign savers, is a clear example of the value of a world currency. I'm not too worried, barring something crazy, of the US losing that status. You know, Keynes, decades ago, had it right when he described it as being like a beauty contest. One doesn't have to be absolutely pretty, only prettier. And the dollar is clearly the best game in town. I mean, you certainly wouldn't suggest a euro uh, as a reserve currency, you wouldn't suggest the yen or even the RMB. So I I think for the foreseeable future, it's the dollar. That's not to encourage mismanagement, but I I feel pretty good about that. Thank you. Mike Gritz, do you have a question?
6: Uh, Yes, I do. Um, One of the things that I've always been involved in is stimulating the economy. Uh, Going back a number of years, uh, we had an accelerated depreciation. And my feeling at this moment is there are so many corporations that have have stayed with a lot of money, major corporations that are not spending that money right now. And I'd love to see an accelerated depreciation, which we did, I think it was in 2003, when nobody was spending and none of the major corporations were spending. And what it did is is the way it worked is you were able to write off 100% of what you spent in the first year uh, and if you did it in the first six months, rather than having to do it over a five year period or whatever, and corporations started spending that money. And to me, that's a very easy thing to do right now. Uh, I think it would create benefits that would increase the tax revenues just by the fact that they would be stimulating the economy to a significant degree. Any thoughts on that? Well, I
1: agree that tax issues are important. I must be one of your friends because I actually came up with the O3 bonus depreciation. So maybe you like me for that. Um, I think right now, we had a tax law change in 2017. It was working for investment. Then we had a trade war. To me, the first step is do no harm. Let's not talk about, in a recovery period, substantially raising taxes on corporations and investments. To me that's just mindless and yet I expect to see that in the debate this fall So I would start there. I expect the White House will propose investment incentives in the recovery To me those are probably less potent than just defending where we are now getting regulation cleaned up uh, and you know getting the um, uh, Healthcare infrastructure, but I, I definitely hear you on the value of expense
0: Thanks You just heard a pretty provocative take from Glenn Hubbard on the Federal Reserve's lending program to help businesses harmed by the coronavirus lockdown. He says the Fed's focus on minimizing loan losses will prevent many solid small and medium-sized businesses from getting the help they need. The good news is the Fed still has time to change course and fix the design of the program. Hubbard also shared some ideas about how smart tax and regulatory policy and infrastructure investment from Washington can help restore confidence as our economy reopens. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to stop the virus, save lives, and get Americans back to work. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.